Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello. And welcome to the FT Business Books podcast, the place to discover the best in business writing. I'm Miranda Green, columnist and commentator here at the FT. Each week, we are joined by our top writers to talk about the business books they have selected to see you through turbulent times. This week, I'm joined by Sarah O'Connor, employment correspondent and columnist, whose choice of book is a classic of social history, Working by Studs Terkel. Hello, Sarah. Hello. And joining us again is the ever-popular Andrew Hill, the FT Management Editor. Welcome, Andrew. Hello. Before we get to this week's book, Sarah, what are you reading at the moment? I'm not reading anything remotely work-related, I'm afraid. I'm reading The God of Small Things by Arundhati Roy. Ah, who's back in the news with a new book. Exactly, and that's why... So there was obviously a lot of publicity around her new book, and it dawned on me that actually I still hadn't read the original and classic. It's fantastic, I have to say. It's really good. But I'm like a fiction fiend. I read every single night in bed before I go to sleep. Unlike Martin Wolf, who I listened to last week, who said he doesn't read any fiction anymore at all. Yes, I'm a fiction fiend too. Andrew, what are you reading at the moment? Also a fiction fiend, but not reading any fiction at the moment. Between novels, probably, and immersed in business books for our Business Book of the Year Award judging process or pre-judging process. Onerous. uh, Onerous. Not sure I can... We're doing that after this, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Not sure I can accommodate any more words in my head at the moment, so um, I'll take a break after that. Okay, fantastic. So on to our book of the fortnight, Working by Studs Terkel. This thick tome chronicles hundreds of interviews that Terkel conducted with American workers during the 1970s. Published in 1974 originally, it fascinated readers by transforming labour market statistics into the lives of real people. Here is the subtitle. People talk about what they do all day and how they feel about what they do. Sarah, why have you chosen this as our book for turbulent times? Well, there are several reasons, but I think the main one is that we're constantly being told at the minute that the world of work is changing and everything is going to be transformed by technology and you should be terrified slash exhilarated about your future, depending on who you are. And I don't think that that's not true, but I think that this book really reminds you that it was ever thus. All of these interviews were conducted in the 1970s. It was really where technology was starting to properly kind of creep into workplaces. And you see it and feel it in every page of this book. There's not a single interview that doesn't talk about how a new machine or computers have changed, often for the worst, frankly, the way people feel about their jobs. So I think that it's useful to go back and remember what the start of this era looked like and to remember that it's not actually new. 
And then the other thing is, I think there's a, particularly in America right now with Donald Trump, there's a sort of nostalgia for the world of work of the 1970s. You know, Trump is putting tariffs on steel because he wants to bring back all of those steel jobs. Well, people should read this book and read the interviews with the steel workers because they did not love their jobs. In fact, they hated their jobs. And they were doing it purely in order to create a better future for their own children. And there's a quote here, one of my favourites. Actually, this is the very first interview in the book, and I suspect that this guy, this steel worker from Chicago, is such a philosophical guy that I think Studs Terkel put him first. But he says at one point, I want my kid to be an effet snob. I want him to be able to quote Walt Whitman and to be proud of it. If you can't improve yourself, you improve your posterity. And I think that's a really powerful thing that has gone through the human history of work. And one reason that we're worried now is that people are starting to think, are my kids going to have a better future than me? Absolutely. I think that comes out very strongly as a theme, doesn't it? This idea of wanting the next generation to abandon some of these really tough jobs and do something different. And of course, we're living through a period where you can't trust that the next generation will be more prosperous than the last. And as a result, we're kind of fetishising these jobs of the past Mm. that people hoped would go away and actually we're trying to bring them back. Absolutely. Andrew, your reactions to this work and why Sarah's chosen it? Well, I was very pleased to read it because it was sort of vaguely in the back of my mind that there was this book out there, but I'd never have dug into it if Sarah hadn't chosen it. And absolutely, I agree that it's immediately striking. You don't need to read the whole thing cover to cover. You just can dip in and you'll immediately find something that seems right up to date in terms of concerns about work. Lots of people, I think probably Turkle pressed them on this point, but lots of people talking about their pride or lack of pride in the work that they do, their search for meaning in work, which is something that interests me a lot. I did a magazine feature a few years ago, which in the end looks a bit like a sort of mini Turkle, where I got a group of people together to recreate a painting called Work from the 19th century. And I asked these modern equivalents what they thought of work and what did it mean to them. And the answers were very similar. Again, it was people striving for money, obviously, and you can't deny that, but all trying to find some way of seeing meaning in their work if they could. So I think that's just an eternal truth that comes out very strongly from these impressive interviews. That's very interesting because the painting that you were writing about, work by Ford Maddox Brown, and some of the themes that come through this Studs Terkel book, you get the impression that Terkel is wanting to be quite didactic and to draw a moral from all his reporting. And of course, that great Victorian painting describes what Terkel calls work as, quotes, violence to the body and the spirit. In our kind of modern preoccupation with meaning in essentially in white collar jobs, do you think we've forgotten about this? The fact that there is a essential element of work that is deleterious to the individual and harming, damaging. Maybe we've gone too far into assuming that work can have lots of meaning. I mean, right. there's a piece of research that I looked at recently it was looking at the way in which in advertising for internships for city law firms and professional services firms, the ads themselves that are circulated to students are talking about how you can get added meaning and fulfilment from work. But in fact, this research suggested that this had actually had an effect by making it seem 
that you were going to be totally fulfilled through work, when it turned out to be anything less than totally fulfilling, you'd plunge <laughs> into depression and actually worse, suicide and mental health problems of all sorts. So it's a danger, I think, that you lose sight of the fact that work is sometimes just work. But I think that it's one thing work just being work, and then it's one thing work actually feeling damaging to the soul in some way. And these aren't ideas that we really talk about very much in a newspaper, but I think it really does come through in Studs Terkel, and not just with the kind of manual jobs that you might think of. I think one of the interviews that I found most affecting was with a receptionist, and she basically felt completely enslaved by the telephone. She despised this telephone because her day was not her own. As soon as it rang, she said it was like a Pavlovian dog response. She had to pick it up, and therefore she could never get into anything long term. She felt as if she had no control over her life. She would sit behind her receptionist desk and write these desperately miserable letters. She would never send them to anyone, but she just wrote them just to try and express what she was feeling. And I think that sometimes we're in danger of missing the sort of quiet despair that's going on all around us. Not to say there aren't also lots of very inspiring stories in the book, but... No, that's very interesting, actually. I mean, I was very struck between the different ways in which the kind of blue-collar labourer jobs both male and female are portrayed and then the sort of modern office worker jobs are portrayed and you're right in those modern office environments you felt that people were desperate for some way of showing their individuality or even their difference from any other cog in the corporate machine there's a woman who desperately decorates her computer with lots of little personal mementos and photos and ornaments I mean, what do you think about that, Sarah, this idea of just a mass of alienated office workers? I mean, I felt it was a bit overly grim at times. Yeah, so the way the book is presented for people who haven't read it is it's basically just transcripts of people talking. So you don't really have Studs Terkel interpreting what they're saying at all, and nor do you have his questions. It really just reads like monologues. But obviously he is still a very strong presence behind the scenes, and we know that he must be asking certain questions, probing in certain directions, and possibly you know, his own feelings about whether some work is more valuable than others could be showing through just in the kinds of stories that he selects. And that's something you never really know with a book, is what influence the author's really having. But I think there's clearly something there, and actually... There have been huge numbers of public health studies that show that the most damaging thing for your health is a feeling of lack of control yes. at work. Yes. Like that is worse than everything else, is feeling as if you have no autonomy and no control. And that's a stressor, right? Yeah. yeah. There's an interesting bit in the white-collar part where he interviews a dentist, and the dentist actually talks about dentistry being the greatest job in the world because of the autonomy that he feels. He says, I don't know any profession in the world that's better than dentistry. You're your own boss, you set your own hours, you can go anywhere in the world and practice. And in addition to that, he says, as opposed to medicine, for example, you don't have the burden of life and death over your head at every decision, which I'd never really thought about in terms of dentistry. Clearly, they're unlike doctors who are feeling that there is a life and death decision, the stress is there isn't. Yeah. I feel like taking Speaks up dentistry. <laughs> but that autonomy point does come out very strongly, I think. Did you read the interview with the prostitute? Yes. Yeah. Because she also, that was the one thing that she highlighted that she really liked about her job, was she felt totally in control of these transactions with these men. They were not in control, but she was. And that was what she liked about it, was a kind of sense of power. What's interesting is that, I don't know whether you found this, is that some of the white-collar ones come across as more dated in an odd way, yeah. because we're talking about the sort of end of, if you like, the Mad Men era. So there's a large strain of pretty gross sexism that runs through a lot of the discussions with the men and the women 
in the white collar and the other areas. That's one element. But I also found even there, there are still some parallels that are quite interesting. There's the consultant they interview, because we're all going to be consultants eventually, who says that he had experienced this loss of status when he moved from being a big wheel in the corporate world to being a consultant, which I'm convinced is something, having talked to independent consultants and others, that people feel when they move out of corporate offices into their own thing. They get the autonomy, but they lose the status. So there's all sorts of great strains that are still present now. The air hostess was very interesting in that regard as well, because the thing she loved about her job was the status. She said, my father's got seven kids, and the only one that he ever mentions what their job is is mine. He says, oh, my daughter's an air hostess, and she's really proud of that. But actually, when she talks about the job, it sounds horrific. And speaking of the Mad Men era, I mean, she got sent off when she joined on a two-week makeup and hair course where she had to learn exactly not only how to apply her makeup and how to do her hair, but how to talk to men, how to allow a man to light your cigarette in the most dainty way and make eye contact <laughs> with him at the appropriate moments. I mean, it's all really grim and it makes you glad that, as a young woman, it makes me glad that I'm not making my way in the early 1970s. Yes, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because when I came to the book on your recommendation, I was thinking about, well, how how well will this have aged from the 70s? And actually some of the male-female elements are possibly the things that feel quite alien now. I should probably fess up. I recently went to see a stage musical version of Working by Studs Terkel where somebody had transposed these monologues as songs. Beyond the call of duty, Miranda. Well, there we are. We're all so conscientious at the <laughs> FT on behalf of our listeners and readers. Did it work? It did work. It was absolutely great evening, actually, and it's on in London at the moment. But it was actually adapted in the 70s by the chap who did Godspell and Wicked. So it's proper top-ranking piece of musical theatre. But one of the things that came across very strongly in that, because clearly they'd had to select a few examples was not just this contrast between the blue-collar and the white-collar work, but all of the women were so miserable and either martyred unknowingly, like your air hostess who you're talking about, or just utterly miserable. There was one magnificent song written by the great James Taylor of a woman mill worker talking about how her body has been destroyed by this repetitive work, about her 10-hour shift in extreme heat and how she's had to do the whole thing because of making a disastrous choice in the father of her children at the beginning of her life. I agree with you Sarah, it made me think about automation which we'll come on to discuss in a moment and how you might be liberating people from terrible jobs through automation but also this idea of women one would hope in our later generations do have more choices. I don't know what you think about that Andrew. There's a horrific one in the book, I don't know whether it's in the musical of a woman who's working on a line producing suitcases and it's a heated line because they're molding the interiors of these suitcases and she talks about the burns that she gets I mean it just sounds horrific yeah. and we're not talking about industrial revolution times and uncaged machines and so on we're talking about relatively and yet there you think well thank goodness that was automated in a way you've taken out presumably I don't know how suitcases are made but I presume there's a molding line now that has very few people anywhere near the heated elements but that question came up very strongly in that. Yes exactly it sounded that. like Victorian levels of appalling work conditions that would wreck your health mm. so I don't know Sarah we should come on to this what do you think the book can help us with as we're grappling with a new age of automation AI people are worried that robots are going to take all of our jobs what can Studs Terkel help us with in the turbulence we're experiencing at the moment? 
I think you can help us in several ways. And the first is the one that I think Andrew and you just identified, which is to remember that a lot of the things that robots are taking over are really miserable, horrible jobs. Actually, let's just be clear, probably some of those jobs were not automated. They were outsourced right. to East Asia and probably the conditions are just as bad now. It's just that it's not Americans that are suffering them. It's uh, lower income people in the developing world. But that said, we can create machines to do some of these things and that would be great. I mean, the number of people in this book, I don't know if you noticed this as well, that at some point in their interview say, I feel like a robot. Exactly. I feel like yes. I am a machine. That's you know, right. that all I'm, my body is just being destroyed by doing this repetitive thing over and over. And the only thing that gets them through is the thought that there'll be something better at the end of it for their children. So I think to sort of remember that a lot of the things that we're going to automate, we probably shouldn't mourn the passing of. And then the other thing that I think it's really important to think about and that comes out very clearly in this is the way that technology changes the nature of the jobs that do remain. Because a lot of jobs won't go, but they will be changed in various ways. And I think what was clear even in the start of the 1970s was that some of those changes people were not enjoying. And we need to think about if we're going to start rolling out AI more and more into workplaces, how do we make sure that it does feel liberating and it does feel as if we, the humans, are now seizing more control rather than just being dictated to by the machines? Because that's certainly what various people in yes. this book were starting to feel. Yeah, there's the woman who works as an airline reservations clerk, and she talks about the coming of Sabre, which was the initial airline's reservation computer system, and how it turned what had been a quite a sort of bespoke job, answering the phone and dealing with first-class passengers and into a production line, she says. We adjusted to the machine. The casualness, the informality that had been there previously was no longer there. The last three or four years on the job were horrible. The computer had arrived. Yes. I mean, you can almost hear Studs Turkle punching the air as he gets that <laughs> quote. Because, I mean, it really just sums up the whole issue that you're describing. Of... Exactly. There's yeah. somebody else, isn't there? I think it's a different interviewee who says, I'm called a communications worker, but I'm not allowed to communicate. Yes, and he feels that all humanity is being taken out of his exchanges, even over the telephone, which yeah. now we're a bit nostalgic about the telephone as a very human way of communicating, because at least you're using the voice, which is a way of transmitting emotion. But yeah. he felt, exactly as you're saying, that he was not allowed to be human, even on the phone. Yeah. There were interviews with people in call centres who basically said, at some point, surely they're going to create a machine to do this. There was one person who said something like, it feels cruel to make a human do this all day. Yeah. A part that interested me, and I don't know whether this is just a tiny, over-optimistic strand, but it comes through in some of the interviews, is when people talk about the satisfaction of doing the job well, even if overall the job is not significant or even is quite brutal. There are a number of people who talk about the need to do the job beautifully, or the, there's a waitress, I think, who yeah. talks about that. Um, oh, that's wonderful in the musical. They've turned that into a fantastic song, actually. Make it yes. into an art form, waiting says, tables even, with yeah. flair. Even, yeah. even if nobody cares, I want to be able to pick the glass up without it making a noise and that kind of thing. Yeah. And then there's a baker who talks about the satisfaction of doing the job, which obviously maybe for baking is better than for making the inside of suitcases but do you think that is something that we're going to learn to appreciate more in an odd way the satisfaction of doing the job rather than the overall meaning of the job in the wider world is that a consolation or is it frankly just whistling in the dark well I suppose it 
could be it would depend on the sort of job and how much of it you have sight of and I think that's another thing that comes out in the book is like if you're the waitress you're in charge of that whole interaction there's a grave digger who again feels great pride in his work because he cuts like the straightest most perfect graves and he says mm-hmm. no machine will do that as well and as perfectly as I will. And a stonemason as well. And a stonemason who drives past the houses that he's made and he remembers each one Mm. and where were the tiny flaws. But he knows that that will be standing there for posterity, that he's created something that will continue to exist. That's quite a romantic vision, actually, of manufacturing. He's also tormented by each brick that he's got slightly out of of sync, isn't he? He says, nobody else would spot this, but I know I made a mistake, which is actually a bit like being a journalist. That's true, actually. And having made an error that's been corrected, you just know that it's sitting there forever. Yeah, but I mean, if there are lessons to be learnt and I suppose that clearly is something that we all long for the sense that we can do a job well and that it's within our capacity to really nail it that actually there'll be some sort of recognition or some lasting benefit from that so if we can think about designing jobs so that that is possible that would be a good start there's a guy in here who I can't remember what his job is some sort of manual job in a big factory and he says he really regrets that he's not the stonemason that actually there is no one thing that he can point to and say I did that and he says I wish that in the Empire State Building they listed every single person who worked on every single part of this building so that I could take my son there and point to my name and say I helped to make that beam or whatever it was. Well, that's very political, isn't it? That's come up in the rhetoric around the US presidential elections recently, this idea that it's not just the robber barons who were expanding west who built the American railroad. It was the individual workers who laid the tracks. This idea of recognition of the dignity of labour of the individuals who put their backs into making America great. I mean, it's quite an interesting intervention in the current US conversation, wouldn't you say, Andrew? That's right, yes. And I think that point that Sarah raises about the question of designing jobs so that they are satisfying, even if they are not in themselves the highest status jobs, is crucial. And what I worry about really is that there isn't anyone from politicians down to managers who is thinking about job design because it's all about the mass it's all about what can you produce with the it's all about productivity really isn't it how do you maximize productivity there isn't an element of quality and productivity that is significant enough to make people want to do it in a different way that satisfies the worker yeah i think through, through history since the dawn of factories really the main push towards productivity has been to split work up into lots of small tasks and actually that is more efficient overall but it does have this effect of actually stripping some of the meaning out of work for those people who are doing it so maybe one possibility as we develop brand new ways of doing all kinds of things that we used to have to get humans to do piecemeal is to try and think carefully about where do we apply technology and where don't we apply it because it is within our gift to decide how to deploy these new tools. It's not a force that's rushing towards us that we have no power over. I mean, we're creating these things in the first place. Absolutely. And also, Andrew, what would you say to this idea that Sarah raised, that people also seek recognition for what they've done and for their contribution as well? Is that something that management should think about? Well, I think absolutely. And I've always said and written a number of times that the simplest way to reward somebody is with recognition, just to say thanks for something or to express your appreciation. And yet in every profession and a lot of white and blue collar jobs, people reach for money as the only thing that they can use to reward. They go for the simple tools, which again, research has proved that bonuses 
only have an effect in certain types of job. In other jobs, they turn out to be distorting. They're not relevant for people at the very highest level. They become confusing and CEOs and others don't adjust their behaviour, as we know all too well. I'm not suggesting that people should work only for recognition and no pay or too low pay, but the combination of the two could be very powerful, and I think that comes through in the book. It's great stuff, isn't it? Sarah, I wouldn't describe it as totally straight reportage, despite the way that it's presented. I mean, he does clearly, old studs, have a political viewpoint and an agenda, doesn't he? How does that come across? So I think he does. There's an introduction where he talks about the idea that work is sort of violence to the body and the soul. And then the rest, as I said, is just these interviews. But I think it's clear in the questions that you have to assume he's asking. You don't know what questions he's asking because you just have their words. But he's clearly really focused on these ideas about control and power and all these things that would suggest he probably feels as if the working man and woman has become slightly downtrodden by the the system. What do you think? I think that's right. I think there's something in the ordering, as you've already hinted, of the interviews. And clearly, he is in the background. He obviously had a tape recorder running. But how much did he put in? It's a very interesting form of book, because I don't think anyone would necessarily get away with it now. We would be asked if we were writing a book, what's your view? And indeed, books like Barbara Ehrenreich's books about working in the low-income sectors in the US are about her involvement and how does she feel about it. And then the interviews are interpolated with her views. So it would be very hard to get away with being Studs Terkel now and not having more than just your little introduction. People would be saying, well, you've got to write this in. We want to see what this was like. We want your descriptive powers. He's left it very much to the speakers, which is fascinating. And yet it was a bestseller when it came out, which is extraordinary. I mean, it's really long. And as you say, there's no structure whatsoever, but it was phenomenally popular. But I read a few reviews from The Time, and the New York Times review did criticise it for exactly what you're saying. It sort of said, look, we want more of Studs Terkel in here. We want to know what his analysis is. Like, what does he think that this is all saying? He was quite a figure, though, wasn't he? I was looking back at his obit from the FT, apart from the fact that Barack Obama picked him. Not just your good self, Sarah, but Obama says that this is one of the most influential books. He copied me. (laughs) (laughs) And he was a radio host, I believe, and actually a kind of leftist public intellectual in the state. So I imagine that people did kind of understand where he was coming from and that it wasn't a totally neutral picture of working America. And I kind of respect him for not putting himself into it too much. Yes, so do I. I, I. Because I think often books now feel very much me, me, me. You know, actually, I love the books that you're talking about, but it does sometimes feel as if it's all about the journalist or the reporter rather than giving enough time and space to the interviewees and what they want to say. I suppose the equivalent now would not be a book. It would be a fly-on-the-wall documentary. It would be something where the director had stood back and said, I'm going to edit, I'm going to choose the people I see and edit what they say, but I'm going to let them speak for themselves. Yeah. But as, as we all know, that has to be summed up in a two-word theory. Yes. <laughs> well, yes, true, true. And also, it's very hard to totally take yourself out, isn't it? I mean, you can try your best. I think about this a lot as I'm sure we all do as journalists, is even when you try and take yourself out of the story, you're still having to make a million decisions about which quotes to use, which yes. quotes not to use, where do you cut, where do you not cut. And so I think even with the best will in the world, it's never going to be a total opening up of 
everything that this person thinks and has to say. I mean, what's impressive reading them is his persistence because we all know that when you take a tape recorder, even for quite a long interview, your natural human instinct is to slightly shy away when things get too personal. You know, there is a sense, I find at any rate, that you think, I respect this person and I don't want to probe. There's a point beyond which some people won't go. Mm. And he is obviously duking it out with these people. I mean, these are long, long interviews. And I think he says in his introduction, doesn't he, that he felt bad after doing one interview with a firefighter, I think, or somebody. He said, I've got to go and do another interview now. I can't come for supper. And the guy said to him, you spent the whole afternoon talking to me and you won't even break bread with me. Yeah, I've poured Um, my whole soul out to you. I've poured my soul out. (laughs) So the amount of time, but also the sticking with it and not saying when they stumble or won't say something, okay, I think we're done here. That's keeping the tape recorder on is quite a challenge in those circumstances. It's amazing interview technique. And actually, it's very easy to read, isn't it? We should say to listeners, although it's a very, very long book, it's a joy to read because you can dip in and out because they're these self-contained personal stories. I found you could read a couple and then you'd go away and the people would stay with you for the next couple of days and you'd think about their life story. Yeah as you're going about your own business and it all percolates through in a quite wonderful way. You don't have to read every single page, do you, Sarah? And I think if you read every page all in one go, you might sort of keel over. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's perfect for dipping in and out of. And every story has something that strikes you and makes you think differently about working life today. Well, you could write a novel from something in every story that's in there. I mean, it's amazing, actually. Absolutely. Well, that's it from us this week. Thank you so much, Sarah, for sharing your thoughts on Studs Terkel. I've certainly been very grateful to be sent away, not just to the book, but also there's this extraordinary song and dance version, which is on in London at the moment. Andrew, thank you so much. Clearly some lessons there for the management cadre, even now from this tale of 1970s labour. Do join us again in two weeks' time when we'll be discussing Shakespeare with Michael Skopinka, our business and society columnist. He has chosen the history play Henry IV Part Two as his book for turbulent times. And you can, of course, find all our podcasts in this series at ft.com forward slash business hyphen book hyphen club. So my thanks to Sarah and Andrew and to our producer Anna Dedder. And if you want to join our discussion, do please tweet to us using the hashtag FTBizBooks with a Z or email us at businessbookclub at ft.com. Thank you for listening. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.